You know, it's interesting, after you read Paul the Apostle's writings enough, you get a mental picture of what he would look like. At least I do. And I have seen paintings painted of Paul the Apostle. And the images that are usually painted are the same images that I would have of him. I've seen pictures of Paul where he looks like he's tall in stature. He has marked features in the face. He's handsome and uh, kind of chiseled features with a beard and that pensive look. And um, yet I think you'd be surprised if you were to actually meet the guy. Though you might stereotype him or have a mental image, the oldest physical description of Paul is this. He was a man of moderate stature with curly hair, scanty, crooked legs, protruding eyeballs, large knit eyebrows, a long nose, and thick lips. Sounds like Marty Feldman. (laughs) This is the great apostle Paul. And it sort of shatters our image of what this man looked like. When I go some places and do what we call a radio rally, where we're on in the area on the radio for a period of time, and we go there and we touch base with the community, the comment I get mostly is, you're not, you don't look like what I pictured in my mind you'd look like based on hearing your voice. And, you know, they never explain if that's good or bad. They just kind of leave it at that. But you hear somebody or you read someone and you get a, a sort of a picture. Now, Paul wrote the book of Titus toward the end of his life. He wrote Timothy and Titus. And the last book that we know he wrote was Second Timothy. And this is about two years before his death, when now he's an older man. Age is settling in. He's a wise man. He's walked the walk. He's fought the fight, as he put it. He's run the race. And he's looking forward to heaven. I was sort of reminded of age today. I was speaking to someone at a funeral I conducted here at Calvary Chapel, and this fellow came up and said, uh, uh, I used to come here a long, long time ago when you were young. (laughs) You know, that's one of the statements you just leave alone. You don't ask what they mean by that, because it's pretty obvious, but you just walk away from it and thank them. Now tonight... We're going to take a look at Paul, not physically, but we're going to look at him in his credentials and his calling. Let's read the first four verses again. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, a true son in our common faith. Now, by way of review, let's look back on the last time that we had this study, because actually tonight is a continuation of the same theme in these first few verses. Last time we met in our first study in Titus, we looked at Paul's co-worker named Titus, kind of a description of him. And then Paul's correspondence, the letter of Titus, or the letter to Titus. We saw that Paul was never a lone ranger. That was an important point from last study, and it bears review. Paul's not the kind of a guy to say, I'm a pioneer type, I can do it all on my own, just point the direction, and I've got my Bible and God, I don't need anybody else. He wasn't like that. He was... Dependent on God, certainly, but also very interdependent on other people. He always had a team. It's usually Paul and Timothy, or Paul and Silas, or Paul and Barnabas, or Paul and Onesiphorus and Epaphroditus, and a whole bunch of other Ituses and Osuses, friends of his that accompanied him on trips. Now, Titus was probably led to faith in Jesus Christ by Paul the Apostle. He was a young Greek convert. Because in verse 4, he says, To Titus, a true son in our common faith. And as we mentioned last time, if Paul led him to Christ, shortly thereafter, he brought this young Gentile to Jerusalem. Because there was a big debate about could a Gentile be saved? And what a classic exhibit A Titus would make. Oh, you want to know if Gentiles can be saved? Titus, come out here. Listen to his testimony, fellas. 
and tell me what you think. Not only that, but Titus was a very trustworthy servant. He became a delegate, a representative of Paul the Apostle, uh, to the church at Corinth, uh, which is not an assignment I'd ever want to undertake. Titus sent him to this carnal, divided church and said, You are my messenger, and I want you to take an offering from them for the church in Jerusalem, as well as encouraging them and strengthening them in the faith. And so he must have been very trustworthy for Paul to send him to Corinth, and he must have been trustworthy because in this book of Titus, in verse 5, he was sent to Crete to sort of brainstorm in the spirit and set things in order. Verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So that's Paul's co-worker named Titus. Then we looked at and considered Paul's correspondence. Why did he write this letter? And we realized that there were at least three purposes why he wrote it. He wrote it, number one, to encourage Titus. After all, how would you like to follow Paul's act? Paul had been teaching them. He started some kind of a church or work in Crete. And then he left him to take over for Paul. And because of the situation in Crete, uh, there was a leadership vacuum. False teachers were coming in. He needed to raise up leadership. So he wrote it to encourage Titus. And he also wrote it to endorse Titus. Because no doubt this young man in Crete would be asked questions like, what seminary did you graduate from? Where are your ordination papers? Do you have a Ph.D. after your name? Why should we trust you? He could bring out this letter and show them verse 5 and other verses where Paul himself endorsed and commissioned him to this church. So we wrote the letter to encourage Titus, to endorse Titus, and to instruct Titus, to amplify all of the instruction that he had no doubt left him with when he left him in Crete that he should set out parameters for godly leaders. And that's the first part of the book. How to select godly leaders for the ministry. And then parameters for godly living for the church in general. So it's like a pocket guide to life in the church. Now tonight, we continue in the same outline. We've seen Paul's co-worker and Paul's correspondence. Tonight, we follow the same kind of an outline in these verses. And we look at Paul's credentials and finally Paul's calling. Let's look at his credentials, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. Now, this is a common introduction. And if you're familiar at all with the apostles of Paul or James or Jude, you find that they have this pattern where they will, first of all, say, from to, like from Paul or from Jude or from Peter, to whomever they're writing to. Now, I like that. I don't like the modern way of writing a letter where you sign your name at the end, simply because whenever I get a letter, I never read it without first looking at the back page. I'll find out who it's from, and then I start reading. And it would be a lot easier if you just you know, start out like a fax. To so-and-so, from so-and-so. Well, that was the ancient pattern of letter writing. And it was a pattern, not only of Paul's letters, but in general. And I've never shared this with you before, but I thought I'd share tonight a copy, a very small copy, of a secular letter written from the same time of Paul the Apostle. And you're going to notice some common threads, that there is an introduction, a greeting, there's a period of thanksgiving. There's a prayer for the people that this man writes to. There's the content of the letter. There's closing salutations and greetings to other people. And you find that when you read the letters of Paul, he follows the same general ancient outline. This is an ancient letter written from a soldier named Appion to his father, Epimachus. And it goes like this. Appion sends heartiest greetings to his father and lord, Epimachus. I pray above all that you are well and fit and that things are going well with you and my sister and her daughter and my brother. I thank my Lord, Serapis, that's his false god, 
that he kept me safe when I was in peril on the sea. As soon as I got to Mycenae, I got my journey money from Caesar, three gold pieces, and things were going fine with me. So I beg you, my dear father, send me a line first to let me know how you are, and then about my brothers, and thirdly, that I may kiss your hand because you brought me up well. And because of that hope, God willing, I am soon to be promoted. Give Capito my heartiest greetings and my brothers and Serenella and my friends. I send you a little picture of myself painted by Euctemon. My military name is Antonius Maximus. I pray for your good health. Serenus sends good wishes. Agathos, Damien's boy, and Turbo, Galonius's son. End of the letter. Now, there is a little tiny example of an ancient letter, and you find that as you read the New Testament letters, Paul follows the same form. However, what grabs our attention here is the two words that Paul uses to describe himself in the beginning of this letter. These are his credentials. Notice these two words a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's his profile. These two simple words, I am a servant, I am an apostle. I was in my study today, and I was looking through different Christian books, and uh, I was reading the flap, the little bio of different authors as I would read And I thought, you know, if Paul the Apostle were around today and some large book agency, even Christian book agency, got a hold of him and gave him a contract to write a book, his bio would probably sound something like this. Quote, Dr. Paul was raised in the cosmopolitan super city of Tarsus, where he was schooled in the classics of Greece. Later, as a hand-selected student of the famed Hebrew scholar Gamaliel, Dr. Paul studied for the rabbinate in Jerusalem, where he excelled above his classmates. He is a gifted evangelist and speaker and has founded many great churches throughout the Roman Empire. Dr. Paul is also the president of World Outreach International and is in demand as a great conference speaker. Paul just says, I am a servant. I love it. How refreshing. And in truth, that's humility. Now, there was a time in Paul's life where he operated in the grandiose, where he would have shed his great biographical sketch and shared it with everyone. In fact, I would like you to turn back a few books. Go left to Philippians chapter 3. And please notice the dramatic contrast between what he once thought he was and all of his Jewish pedigree, and now what he says about himself. Verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. These aren't barking dogs. This is a metaphor for false teachers. Beware of dogs, of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are of the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But the next verse clenches it. But what things were gained to me, I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Now that's Paul's style. No official titles, just bondservant and apostle. He didn't say Dr. Paul, Reverend Paul, most esteemed theologian Paul, just Paul, a bond slave and a sent one. That's what apostle means. 
of Jesus Christ. He's on intimate terms with them. I think he liked it that way. I think if anybody ever came to him and said, Dr. Reverend Paul, he would have just said, Cool it. Chill. Call me Paul. A servant. I want to be known as a servant of Jesus Christ. I can always tell when a letter comes to me if the person knows me or not by the title on the letter. If it says Reverend Skip, after getting a good laugh, I mean, do I look like a Reverend Skip? I mean, that's kind of an oxymoron in and of it. Reverend Skip. It doesn't work, you know. But I know that person doesn't know me well. And I've shared many times, I don't like anybody being called Reverend. Because in the Bible, only one person is called Reverend, and that's God the Father. And I don't want to take His title. Oh, you're a Reverend? No, I'm just a servant, a bond slave. That's how Paul introduces himself. That seems to be his favorite description of himself. Not only Paul, but many early Christian leaders. If you read the epistle of Peter or James or Jude, they have the same exact description of themselves as leaders. Now one thing I noticed is that in the book of Romans and Philippians, Paul calls himself a servant, but he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. Here he calls himself a bondservant of God. I think what Paul is doing is he can interchange them easily. On one hand, he can say, I'm a bondservant of God. In the same sense, I'm a bondservant of Christ, demonstrating that God and Christ are the same. They're one. As Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one, Jesus said. He's reaffirming that truth, that deity of Jesus Christ. The word bondservant is doulos. It's paulos doulos is how it's written originally. And it was a term that virtually anyone who would receive this letter in the first century would understand. You tell that term to somebody today and they won't quite grasp it unless they're familiar with ancient writings or the Bible. The term slave to people today isn't one we're used to because slavery in our country has been abolished long ago. But when Paul wrote this letter, there were 120 million people who were citizens of the Roman Empire, 60 million of them, half, were slaves. That is, they were owned and they worked completely for another person. So they would understand when Paul would say, I am a slave of God, of Jesus Christ, my Lord. The word doulos is closely associated with another title. In fact, you'll never find one without the other in a working relationship. That's the title kurios. If you have a doulos, a slave, you have to have a kurios, a lord, a master. We're not talking employer-employee relationship here. We're not talking about, hey, I'm your bondservant, I want minimum wage. The kurios owned the doulos. And it was a position of permanent servitude, absolute, total servitude for a lifetime. It was actual slavery. The term doulos of God. Even though, and this is what's interesting to me, Jesus himself, to his disciples, said, no longer do I call you servants. I call you my friends. Isn't that a gracious thing for Jesus to say? I want the intimacy. I'm not going to call you my servants. I'm going to call you my friends. He brought them in, and yet... Even with that beautiful, intimate invitation, you find these guys writing, I am a servant of God. Because to be a slave was to be a king in their estimation. It was the highest form of royalty was to be a slave of God. I think we need to rekindle more and more this concept of servanthood, of being a slave to God in the modern church. There's a lot of celebrities so-called stars, superstars, at least they think they're superstars, or better yet, there are many people who think certain ones in the Christian community should be elevated on a pedestal and seen as a celebrity. God doesn't want celebrities. 
He wants servants. There's only one celebrity, and that's Jesus Christ. Dwight L. Moody said, The measure of a man is not the number of his servants, but the number of the people whom he serves. And really, there's no greater ambition in life, is there? Than to be his slave. What is your goal? Whose slave are you? Now, you might be the proud sort. I'm not anybody's slave. Then you're duped. You're deceived. You're of all men most ignorant. Because you are somebody's slave tonight. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 6. He describes our past life in sin as being a slave of sin. He said, And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I heard of a man in Los Angeles who, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 years ago, would wear placards and he'd walk the streets of L.A. with gospel tracts on his body, on the front and on the back. And one day he was walking downtown in Los Angeles and on the front he had in bold black letters, I am the slave of Jesus Christ. And people would look at him and mock him. Look at that. Look at what it says on the front. He's a slave of Jesus Christ. Then when he would turn around on his back was another slogan or a question, whose slave are you? That's a good question because you're somebody's slave. And you can't serve two masters, as Jesus said. You're either the slave of sin and by default the slave of the devil and the child of the devil or you're a child of God and a slave of God. Like Bob Dylan sang years ago, you got to serve somebody. It's true. Of course, you know how he sang it and I'm almost tempted to do that, but I'm trying to get better at it. So I won't do it. But I am tempted even at this moment to do it, but, but I won't do it. No, I won't do it. But I will read you a scripture. (laughs) What? Now, before you came to Christ, your nature, what we now call as Christians, your old nature, controlled you. The sin nature. You were a slave of that old nature. The slave of your body impulses. The slave of sin. And so Paul in Ephesians 2 says, And you He made alive, listen to how he phrases it, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, just as others. Now that's our past life. Slaves captured by the lust of our flesh. Now you've heard testimonies. Some of you have given testimonies about how in the past certain habits, certain sins gripped your life. Some of you have given testimonies about being an alcoholic or being a drug abuser or being someone who lusts for power or somebody who has an inordinate physical affection, desires that consumed you. And every time I hear testimonies, two things come to my mind, and they should always come to our minds, that is, as Christians, we ought to be very compassionate towards sinners, because they are under a grip and a bondage, they're slaves to sin, they're under a horrible tyrant, a despot, the devil is a despot, he's a cruel tyrant, and he'll enslave a person through their habits, through their inclinations. And it seems that those habits are like a vortex. It just spins more furious and faster and faster and the grip gets tighter and tighter. Secondly, it shows me that man is never his own master. As some people will say, I'm a free thinker. I'm the master of my own fate, the captain of my own ship. Oh, no, you're not. You're either the slave of God or you're a slave of the devil. 
How can you say that? Well, it says in the Bible, we know that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. That's an incredibly sweeping statement, isn't it? The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Of course, you remember the time when Jesus had a little interview with the scribes and the Pharisees. They were angry at him because he preached the truth and people were following him. And Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall what? Set you free. Now this really angered the Jews. Remember their response? We're Abraham's children. We've never been in bondage to anyone. Now, when you read that, you think, do you guys even know your own history? Have you ever heard of the Babylonian captivity, the Assyrian captivity? You've been slaves to a lot of people. But they were speaking about that nationalistic pride. We're Jewish people. We're Abraham's children. We've never been a slave to anyone. Jesus said, whoever commits sin is what? A slave of sin. But you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You should also know that the only way for Roman slaves to be released from slavery was to be bought by another one. And that other person could either say, you're now my slave because I bought you, or now I will release you. And if you want to stay with me, fine. But the only way to be released was either death or to be sold, to be bought by another. And that's where the good news comes in. Because we were slaves of sin, and this is Paul's imagery here. We were bought with the blood of redemption. And now we're called not to just do our own thing and call that freedom, but we are now freed, Paul says, to be God's slaves. As he says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Now I want to read that to you in the Phillips translation because it goes along with our text. Sin pays its servants. Sin pays its servants. The wage is death. The devil will always be faithful to pay up. If you serve him, he'll pay you. Death. Forever separation from God. For all of eternity. Sin pays its servants. The wage is death. But God gives to those who serve him. His free gift is eternal life. So Paul, a bond servant... I've been called to a higher slavery bought by Jesus Christ. And really, that's the way to freedom. I know it sounds like a paradox. The way to freedom is to be a slave. It's a Christian paradox. If you want to be free to be all that God intended you to become, don't think it's by saying, I'll do whatever I want to do, but my goal is to serve and please Him as His slave. Ultimate freedom to be all that God intended you and created you to become. And of course, Jesus was the classic example of being a servant in John chapter 13. He, after the supper, took a towel and a basin and he started washing his disciples' feet and Peter resisted a little bit. And you remember the story. And Jesus simply said, I've done this as an example. As I've done this to you, I want you to do this to one another. Serve one another. Love one another. You are called to that. Ruth Harms Cocken supposes this encounter with God. You know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how eagerly I speak for you at a woman's club. You know how I effervesce when I promote a fellowship group. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the calloused feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew. There are those who, in the church, want that position of leadership to be seen, to be in charge, to be in front. Though Paul was in front, though he was an apostle, he was first a servant. Now you might ask this question, How do I know if I really have a servant attitude? What's the gauge if I've graduated to become a servant of God? Actually, that question was asked to the president of the Navigators at one time, Lauren Saney. And he said, you'll know if you have a servant attitude by how you act when you're treated like one. See, a lot of us want to be called servants, but we just don't want to be treated like one. 
Oh, I'm a servant of God. And then when we're treated like one, how can that person do that to me? I have rights. Right. Slave has rights. A bond servant. Second on the list, an apostle. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. Apostle, that, that has a fancy kind of a package attached to it. At least in our minds, we think an apostle is some grand title. It, it simply means a messenger, a commissioned one, a delegate. And what Paul is saying is, I am a servant for this purpose, to be a messenger, to run at the bid of God to do whatever he wants me to do. So he defines the nature of the service. I'm a messenger under orders. As I was studying this text this afternoon and this morning, I found that of all the titles that Paul uses for himself, he uses this one the most, an apostle. In Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 Corinthians 1, Colossians 1, Philippians, uh, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, is the term apostle. Even to personal friends that he knew, personal letters, he always designated himself as an apostle. Now, I want to touch on an issue, and then I want to apply it to all of us. Are there apostles today? Paul, an apostle... We know Peter is an apostle. John, we have no problem. John, yes, you're an apostle. Are there apostles today? Well, in one sense, no. In another sense, yes. Originally, the term speaks of 12 and 12 only. There were a great number of disciples that followed Jesus, but there was a transition in the life of 12 of them. And in Luke chapter 6 we read, And when it was day, he called his disciples to him, and from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles. So technically, originally, it refers to only twelve guys. Now one defected. And because of that, the early church saw the need to fill his space. And they drew lots, and remember who they chose? Matthias. Because there is now a vacancy. Jesus chose twelve. One is gone. We need somebody to fill his vacancy. The teaching of the early church was given the designation, the Apostles' Doctrine. Because they had been with Jesus. They had heard him teach. They had first-hand experience as an eyewitness. And then they taught the early church, so it became known as the Apostles' Doctrine, the teaching of the twelve. Now, there were qualifications to be an apostle. Number one, the person had to be with Jesus from the beginning. That's stated in Acts chapter 1. That's how they chose Matthias. You have had to have been with Jesus physically. Secondly, you had to be the witness of his resurrection. You've had to have seen him after his resurrection in the flesh. That's also in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Mark 3 indicates that the apostles had a personal call from Jesus Christ. Fourthly, The apostles were there to lay the foundations of the church. Ephesians chapter 2 says, The church which was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And fifthly, the power to work miracles. Paul brings this up in many occasions as the authenticity of an apostle. They work the miracles or they have the signs of an apostle. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 Signs and wonders done by the apostles. So, in that sense, obviously there can be no apostolic succession, right? You don't pass that on to anybody. In fact, in Revelation chapter 2 to the church of Ephesus, Jesus commends the church because he says, You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you found them liars. But in another sense, yes. In fact, all of us are called to be apostolos, messengers, sent out ones, commissioned ones. Each one of you in this room tonight has a call of God. You have a ministry. God has a place for you, a sphere of influence for you. And he wants to send you out. In fact, if you look at it, even in the strict sense, Paul the Apostle wasn't with Jesus during his earthly ministry. 
Now, he did see the resurrected Christ in a vision. After his ascension, it was in a vision, but he calls himself an apostle, and he was known as an apostle. Paul calls James, the brother of Jesus, an apostle, though James didn't even believe in his brother Jesus until after Jesus rose from the dead. So there were other designations. It is important that you see yourself not only as a disciple, but in some sense as an apostle. Because if you don't, something very tragic will happen to you and to the church you belong to. You'll dry up. And you'll start viewing the church as a spectator sport. You'll develop a mentality, something like this. I pay good money to come here. It's like a country club. I tithe. And so I expect a good show. If it's not a good show, I'm going to complain. And you view it as something to watch rather than something to be involved with. There's a book out called Why Churches Die. As soon as I saw it, I thought, I have to have this. That's such an interesting, blatant title, Why Churches Die. There were several reasons listed with their explanations. One reason given by Hollis Green. Number one, converts do not become disciples. There's a decision, but there's no discipleship, grounding, rooting, following, learning. Second reason why churches die, he said, disciples do not become apostles. This is a salt shaker. You're the salt of the earth. It's great to get inside on Thursday nights, Sunday mornings, different little groups and get the salt all shook up. Had a great time tonight. Ooh, the music. Oh, just great fellowship. And that is good. There is such a place for that. It's important to do that, to do it often. But the value of salt is outside the salt shaker, in the world, on the rotting meat, as it were. Giving life spice, spreading the good news around. Converts do not become disciples. Disciples do not become apostles. We're all sent out with a commission. Now, in verse 2 and 3, we get to Paul's calling, and we only have a few minutes, so we'll see how far we go. And that's the great thing about going through a book verse by verse. You can always quit when the time's up. We have seen now, in last study and this study, Paul's co-worker, Titus, Paul's correspondence, why he wrote the letter, Paul's credentials, now we'll look at Paul's calling, and they're found in verse 2 and 3. He talks about, according to the faith, actually begins in verse 1, second part, God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began. But has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. I've got to admit that it's a tough thing to unravel what exactly that means. Even though this is the New King James, it follows a lot of the language pattern of the Old King James. And I found the New International Version in these verses to unravel the thoughts the very best. Uh, In fact, just the whole idea of the word according in verse 1 is unraveled in the NIV, where it says, an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith. The Greek word is kata, and it would be better translated for. Now, if you don't have an NIV, let me read it to you, and you'll, I think, get the gist better. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought us his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior. Paul's calling according to these verses, was twofold. To bring men to faith in Christ and to bring men who had faith in Christ to a godly walk. First of all, in verse 1, for the faith of God's elect. He wanted, simply stated, he was sent as a servant and as a messenger of God with a passion to see the lost unlost, to see them found by God. He had a drive to see people come into the kingdom. That's quite an ambition. That's quite a drive. The faith of God's elect. Now, the word elect bothers a lot of people. But if you don't like it, then 
learn to get comfortable with it because it's all over the New Testament. In fact, the more you learn about election, the more uncomfortable in one sense you become. But on the other sense, you become really joyful when you realize God picked you. Ephesians verse, chapter 1, verse 4 said, He chose us in Him before the creation of the world. In Romans 8, those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Now, it's, it's a staggering concept. I have sat before and I've really tried in my mind to think it through God's calling and electing people to be saved even before they're born. And I eventually become very frustrated. I just sort of blow a mental fuse. I just, it's, it's difficult, it's frustrating. What do you mean you chose? How could you do that? They're not even born yet. Now, you can't understand that, and I can't understand that, for obvious reasons. We're finite, we're humans, and we lack a very important attribute called omniscience, which means God knows everything. And part of omniscience is foreknowledge. He not only knows everything, He knows everything in advance. When you're dealing with a being who has omniscience and foreknowledge, He can do anything He wants. Because he knows everything that's going to happen. Psalm 90 says we live our life as a tale that has already been told. It's like past tense to God. The time-space continuum isn't an issue with God. To you it hasn't happened. Now it's hard for you to figure it out. You make a guess. You make a prediction. It might happen. It might not happen. Like the weathermen. The weather tomorrow is going to be this. And next day, the weather and the guaranteed high. And Right. The word here for elect, actually the word foreknowledge is not written here, but it's written in Romans 8, which I just quoted, is the Greek word prognostico. Prognosticate, to make a prognosis, to predict something in advance. With a man, that's just an educated guess. With God, it's part of his omniscience. And so God knows the choices you're going to make all throughout your life. God knows if the person is going to say, Lord Jesus, be my Savior, or if that person will continually, by his own free choice, reject Christ throughout his life and be lost. God knows that. Knowing that, with foreknowledge, as part of his divine nature, God elects. The more I explain it, I feel the better off I am to just go ahead and not explain it anymore. Because if you try to explain it, you might lose your mind. But a warning, if you try to explain it away, you might lose your soul. God does elect people. How do I know if I'm elected? Well, are you a Christian? Everyone in this room tonight who has made Jesus Christ their Savior and come to Him in repentance and faith has found that you've been picked and chosen in advance by God. Well, it's not fair for God to pick people and not pick certain people. Well, you want to be picked by God? Yeah. I want to be on God's team. Do you really? Yeah. Well, then repent of your sins tonight. Come to Christ tonight. And you will find that when you do, He's already chosen you. I don't want to come to Christ. I'm not ready. Well, then don't blame God. Well, it's not fair for him to choose. Sure it is. Maybe he chose you. How will I know? Except Christ. I don't want to accept Christ. Well, maybe he didn't choose you. See, I don't know that. You don't know that. And I think it's a moot point to try to make an elaborate presentation of that or to say, I'm not going to preach the gospel and evangelize because, after all, they're maybe not chosen to be saved. But you don't know that. Charles Spurgeon, who was an avowed Calvinist and believed strongly in election, and I'm not a Calvinist, but he said, uh, after he was given a message on this and actually gave an invitation, imagine a Calvinist giving an invitation for salvation, something rarely, if ever, done. Somebody came up to him after the sermon and said, quote, you are preaching the gospel to people who have not been predestined to be saved. 
Spurgeon replied, you're probably right. But do me a favor, just paint a yellow cross on the back of everyone who is predestined to be saved, and I'll preach only to them. You get his point? You don't know who's predestined to be saved out of any group of people. Only God knows their future, God knows their choices, and God has made his sovereign choice. Only God knows. Spurgeon used to say, God, save all the elect, then elect some more. So we're called to preach the gospel to all the world. When did God make his election of you? It talks about the faith of God's elect. When did God choose you? Did God choose you the night you chose him, the day you chose him? Did God pick you and all of a sudden you said, I've had it, Lord. I'm now going to be a good person. From this day forward, I'm going to be good. And did God say, oh, look. That person now is my attention and my love is now warranted by that person. God chose you before the foundation of the world. And again, as Spurgeon used to say, it's a good thing. He probably never would have picked me after I was born. God chose you before he created the world. Now, we wonder sometimes at God's choice. We wonder at people's choice. You might know two people really well, or you might know one person really well, and you find out that that guy is going to be married to this gal, and you know that guy better than that gal knows this guy, and you wonder, what does she see in him? Why would she pick him? And sometimes you may even see God's children and say, why would God pick that person? And no doubt people have thought that about you. I know people have thought that about me. But you know what? I can try to figure it out and I can worry about it and I can question it, but I find it's best to just enjoy it. God has picked me. What an honor. What a privilege. Chosen. Elect. Before the creation of the world. So... Paul's calling to bring men to faith in Christ. Secondly, to bring men to godliness. I draw your attention to verse 1. We'll close here tonight. According to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. Let me read it to you in the NIV. For the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Do you see the, the, the overall picture? I'm a servant. I'm a slave. And God sent me out, and there's a purpose for Him sending me out. I've been dispatched by God as His ambassador to lead people to faith in Christ, all the elect of God, and to lead those who are elect of God to a place where the truth they receive leads them to godliness. Now, you know what? Truth always does that, folks. If a person really receives the truth of God, the truth planted within a human heart produces something. It bears fruit. It leads to somewhere. And that somewhere, according to verse 1, is godliness. Salvation can never be separated from sanctification. This last Sunday night, after the Sunday night Bible study, I was talking to a young man. He came up and asked a question. And I sensed that there were deeper issues. And so I asked him, are you a Christian? He says, oh, yes. I said, great. When did you surrender your life to Jesus Christ? He said, oh, many years ago I... Prayed a prayer. I came forward at an altar call, and I know that because I did that, I'm just eternally saved. I'm saved. I said, so you're serving the Lord? And he, he was interesting. He said, no. He was very honest. No, I am burning a hard and fast path for myself. I know I'm doing wrong. I know I'm living in sin. And I'm going to push hard and fast and have all the pleasure that I can. And I said, when did you receive Christ? Oh, I did a long time ago. And I looked at him and I said, you're a liar. I wanted to get his attention. I think that did it. (laughs) And when he slowed down, he said, what do you mean? I said, listen to what John said. If a man says, I know him, but walks continually in darkness... He is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Well, I don't believe that way. I believe that I said a prayer. I made a profession, and I can live any way I want. I said, you are so entrenched in your sin, 
Your sin has deceived you. You're totally blind to your own condition. It's the truth that leads to godliness. James said it in that beautiful axiom better than anyone. Faith without works is dead. Godliness is such an important concept in this letter as we saw last time. Paul mentions it some six to seven times in these three short chapters. In fact, we have just a few seconds to look at chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, as we bring it to a close. And again, notice how grace is involved in this. True grace. Verse 11 of chapter 2, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Paul, his credentials, a slave, a sent one. For what purpose? He's been called by God to bring people to faith and to bring those elect of God who are in faith to godliness. We'll pick up with the rest next time. As you close your Bible and are about to open your hearts in prayer, I share with you a few sentences of a column from the San Francisco Chronicle written by Herb Cain. Quote, Every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up. It knows it must run faster than the fastest lion, or it will be killed. Every morning a lion wakes up. It knows it must outrun the slowest gazelle or it will starve to death. It doesn't matter whether you are a lion or a gazelle. When the sun comes up, you better be running. Charles Spurgeon said that if you are not running after godliness, the devil is running hard after you. We're called not to veg in the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit. It's to make progress. And in another verse, to run the race set before us. It's great to be elect of God. But now the truth must lead to godliness. So Father, we turn now our hearts toward You and ask that these very vital lessons that are set forth for us in these verses, servanthood, apostleship, for the great purpose of leading men to faith in Christ, men and women to faith, and men and women, young and old, to a place of godliness. And the truth always does that. So I pray that we would know, proclaim, and live your truth. Thank you for this time, Lord, to consider it. We pray that we ourselves would first be changed by it and then demonstrate it.